The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. So BMR, the typical description that we all learn from our textbooks is patients who are over 50, the typical kind of decade is between 70 and 80, who present with this acute onset bilateral upper extremity pain. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call is a wide-ranging discussion of polymalgia rheumatica and giant cell arteritis. We use three articles. The first two are from the In the Clinic series. Polymalgia rheumatica was published May 2, 2017, and giant cell arteritis was published November 1, 2018. At the end of the discussion, we review an interesting case series titled Improvement in Polymyalgia Rheumatica Associated with Improved Control of Diabetes Mellitus. Those published September 15, 2020. Joining me on this podcast today is Dr. Sebastian Satui. Uh, he's originally from uh, Lima, Peru, uh, where he went to Cayetano Heredia for medical school. He did his internal medicine residency training uh, here at UAB. He's currently a fourth-year rheumatology fellow at the Hospital for Special Surgery while a Cornell Medicine. He's a second-year vasculitis fellow and has a specific interest in polymalgia medica. Sebastian, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I've been fascinated by polymalgia medica ever since I was a medical student. There used to be a little, uh, sort, it was almost like a pamphlet journal. It was called Disease a Month. And one of the very first ones I got when I was a third-year student was polymaltraumatica. I'd never heard of it. I read of it, and I thought it was fascinating. Uh, I've diagnosed it several times, but when I talk to current residents, it's sort of a mysterious diagnosis. So maybe you can help us define what polymaltraumatica is as best you can, and how do we diagnose this? How do we figure out that people probably have this syndrome? Thank you for the opportunity to talk about PMR. I think it's 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 something very interesting as as we were talking about it. It lives in this kind of midpoint between internal medicine and then the subspecialty rheumatology. So so PMR, the typical description that we all learn from our from our textbooks, is this patients who are over fifty, the typical kind of decade is between seventy and eighty, who present with this acute onset bilateral upper extremity pain, like with a lot of stiffness and actually. It gets worse with or after rest. So even a lot of people just, you know, go to bed and the next morning they just feel this change. And it's also associated, so that's the shoulder girdle involvement, and it's also associated to similar symptoms in the hip level as well. These symptoms are the typical description, but they're also associated to fever. They're also associated to weight loss, fatigue. When I say fever, low-grade fevers. And it's the difficult part of it. There is no test for it. There's no, compared to other rheumatologic conditions, there's no antibody. The only thing that we go in is about this in specific symptoms that can certainly be part of the manifestation of other conditions. One of them being also in patients with giant cell arteritis, uh, which we can talk a little bit more about as well. And the presence of high inflammatory markers, which are 
certainly uh, adjudicated constantly to autoimmune conditions, but at the same time, as we all know, are not specific and can be seen, can, we can see elevations of CRP, C-reactive protein or, or erythrocyte sedimentation rate, DSR, in the context of other conditions as well. But it's, that's the typical, the typical description that we usually think of in patients with PMR. With regards to diagnosis, it's clinical. It's ruling out other conditions as well. I think a key part besides of the symptoms of, of PMR is the quick response to steroids. That's one thing that the quick response to therapy is, is very characteristic and pathognomonic of, of, of PMR. And I even remember one of one of my professors here telling me like how PMR patients just start feeling better even when the pill is just getting close to their mouth. Uh, and so and they see this response in days it, with regards to what we usually look for in rheumatology and which are commonly used as diagnostic criteria. But we always need to kind of highlight that as rheumatologists that we, most of our criteria are actually classification criteria. So they're made with keeping in mind that what we want is to identify patients, kind of homogeneous patients for studies, for trials. They're not diagnostic criteria in that sense. There's some uh, set of provisional criteria that were done by the EULAR and, um, and the ACR. So the EULAR is the European counterpart of ACR, of the American College of Rheumatology back in 2012. And they used the symptoms plus some ultrasound findings in order to classify someone as having PMR. But in the daily basis, it's, again, clinical picture, ruling out any, any other causes if there's something that just doesn't necessarily fit, and that kind of quick, swift response to, to treatment. We didn't have ultrasound when I was a medical student and uh, intern and resident, and it was sort of a mystery why they had so much pain. It seems like ultrasound has given us more clues as to where the inflammation is. Could, could you help us with that? The findings that are described are usually subdeltoid bursitis, biceps or bicipital tenosynovitis, and then you can actually see also synovitis of the glenohumeral, the hip joint as well. So those are the descriptions. It's not a purely compared to like array. It's not an articular process by itself. It also involves extra-articular findings and an involvement of extra-articular structures as well. That is usually what is described, and those are what actually describe this provisional criteria. That being said, the sensitivity and specificity for ultrasound in PMR is kind of in this probably 60s, high 60s range to some degree. Maybe the specificity can go a little bit higher, but then again, that is in the context of those other clinical findings as well. So it's not, it's not necessarily a, a slam dunk. If you have a patient who has sort of these classic findings, you give them, how much steroid do you give them? So for the treatment, usually what is recommended is between 12.5 and 20. I think what we all want with steroids is finding that sweet spot where symptoms get better at the lowest dose possible. Because as rheumatologists, we prescribe steroids every single day of our life, but we also know, as we say, it's a double-edged sword. And, and it's, it's quite relevant also with, with this patient population because, as we, we can talk about, that's the one thing that we still use for PMR. Usually, we start at between 12.5 and 20. So if you say you start at 15, the patient is feeling fine, great. If not, you can push them up a little bit more. Higher doses of steroids in PMR do, might mean something, which we can talk uh, about, because if you have a patient with PMR who's on 20 is still not feeling good, the one thing that you might need to be concerned about is, is this truly PMR, one, 
Is there something else like an infection? Is this something else like um, a per perineal plastic pr process? Or if this is GCA, because GCA can present without the typical cranial manifestations that we usually think of as well. Uh, but we usually start at 20, give them at least like between two to four weeks for them to settle in that dose and then start going down. So ideally, you want to have them below five milligrams around six months. That being said, that's not the case for several patients with PMR. You bring up a really interesting point, and I know when I talk to house staff and students, there's always a confusion about PMR and GCA, and not everybody who has polymaldramatica has giant cell arteritis, and not everybody who has giant cell arteritis has polymaldramatica. So I always think of it as overlapping Venn diagrams. So, but how much does it overlap? And if we have someone that we suspect has PMR, what should we do to try to decide, is this someone that I need to work up further for the possibility of giant cell arteritis? What I'm guessing is there's some people that we need to do a temporal artery biopsy and some people that we don't need to do a temporal artery biopsy. Kind of starting with numbers. So usually the number that's thought of is 50%, around 50% of patients with GCA have PMR symptoms. And that can happen either as the initial manifestation, or I've actually seen it like in patients who came with a full cranial manifestation, but then when you started tapering off the steroids or when they had their first flare while tapering off the steroids, they had they started saying like, well, yeah, the headache is happening, but also my shoulders are hurting now. And they didn't have that symptom initially. For patients with PMR, um, 10 to 20% of them can actually um, evolve into GCA. So GCA uh, and PMR are part of a spectrum. But to be honest, I don't think we necessarily understand yet uh, who with PMR can has risk factors in order to progress to, to GCA, if, we, if, if progression is the, the correct word. So who with PMR do we need to be concerned about? Because does anyone, everyone need to get imaging or, st or a temporary biopsy for GCA? The answer is no, not necessarily. If someone has uh, PMR symptoms is responding well to kind of this moderate doses of steroids uh, and you can taper easily, then perfect. You don't necessarily need to go and image and, 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 or get a biopsy. But it's certainly key that in any patient with PMR, even in their presentation, for, for you to ask those questions about GCA. So are you having any headaches, any scalp tenderness? Are you having any jaw collocation? Check blood pressure in forearms because Cranial symptoms are, are the main manifestation that we usually are thinking of for GCA, but large vessel involvement in the absence of cranial symptoms can certainly happen as well. And it's it's heard of on PMR patients who get a PET scan and their, their aorta lit, lits up as well. So that large vessel involvement can, can happen. Uh, so in all PMR patients, certainly ask for, for the, the G, GCA symptoms check for GCA for kind of large vessel involvement signs, checking for pulses, checking for blood pressures, checking for bruises, and just keep an eye on them and keep asking those questions. They might get bored of, of pain, that's the same thing if they really don't have it. But then again, they can flare in PMR and this can happen again. And like I mentioned before, if you have a PMR patient who is not responding to 20 of prednisone, that's certainly something to keep in mind, uh, GCA, as well as other, other diagnoses as well. Uh, let me just restate this and make sure I have this right. So we're going to worry about headaches. We're going to worry about scalp tenderness, uh, especially tender temporal arteries, jaw claudication, any bruise, mm -hmm. a discrepancy in blood pressure in the two arms. 
And, and you can check for legs as well. And legs. Mm-hmm. And maybe if they have abdominal pain, you have to think, could this be aortitis? It could be. It's uh, Abdominal involvement is not the most typical thing right. for GCA, although it can happen in the context of isolated aortitis. That's usually something within the large vessel vas- vasculitis realm we think of more in patients with Takayasu, and that's a whole different beast. But certainly, it's keeping an eye, keeping those questions, kind of just checking and monitoring for the patient. What about the eyes? Because I've always heard that people worry about uh, renal artery occlusion. So visual visual loss tends to be very dramatic, and that's why GCA visual loss is still one of the main rheumatologic emergencies as well. That is usually, you know, if you have a patient with PMR who's having visual symptoms, that's certainly something that needs to be seen by ophthalmology as well and, and check for acute ischemic optic neuropathy, uh, or, which is the main manifestation, the main kind of lesion that happens in patients with GCA. So that's something to keep in mind. Again, like I said, that's something usually more kind of acute and catastrophic rather than something like with a little bit more gradual onset but certainly something to, to ask for or to keep in mind if that becomes a, a symptom. So those are sort of the red flags if we ha- have someone we think has PMR. I had a rheumatologist once tell me that some people don't metabolize. We often use prednisone. Some people don't metabolize prednisone well. So if you really think it's PMR and they're not responding to prednisone, it might be worth spending a little extra money and giving prednisolone, and they might respond to prednisolone. Or the, yeah, the switch to medrol, methylprednisolone, which is what, what we have here. That is, to my knowledge, kind of very anecdotal, and that's something that has been passed on me as well. And to be honest, that's something that I've seen, I can say, on maybe a couple of patients that didn't respond to prednisone, and the methyl, methylprednisolone did make the, the switch, and they felt improvement from it. It's not the most common thing, though. So I think if right. you still have a PMR patient on 20 of PRED, I, you could try doing the switch, but I wouldn't just do the switch. I would probably say, okay, I need to take a step back, rethink things. Maybe there's something that I'm missing. Uh, or maybe there's something that's not evident that we need to work, work up for. So one of the things that I learned from reading the in the clinic on uh, polymalgromatica was uh, RS3PE and number of years ago, uh, maybe over 20 years ago, I had uh, this wonderful patient who was a construction worker. And one of his jobs as a construction worker was to carry uh, concrete blocks in each hand. So this is a 65-year-old guy who had muscles. I dreamt of having places like where he had muscles. He was really a strong guy. And one day he could not grip the concrete blocks anymore. So he went to a rheumatologist, went to primary care physician that gave him non-steroidals, it didn't do any good. He went to another city, they tried some different non-steroidals, it didn't do any good. At the same time, he started having difficulty walking because of hip pain, and he had difficulty combing his hair and washing his hair. He comes in to see me, and he gives me a story that fits for polymyodramatica, but he also has a physical exam and a story that fits for seronegative rheumatoid arthritis because I get a rheumatoid factor, which is totally normal. But his SED rate is in the 80s or 90s. Uh, We weren't doing much CRP. Uh, This is around 95, 96. I thought it was an overlap syndrome. um, And more recently, I've heard about this RS3PE, which uh, is more than just a great pimp question, because it's actually something that uh, internists might actually see. So maybe you could tell us a little something about that. So RS3PE is, uh, let's see, remitting 
seronegative symmetrical synovitis with beating edema. <laughs> and it's basically, um, you see a patient with actual synovitis joint pain, small joint pain. So small joint pain can happen in, in patients with PMR. So that's something to keep in mind, but it can have eventually a different flavor or one thing to always keep in mind is that rheumatoid arthritis is part of the differential, like late onset rheumatoid arthritis is part of the differential for, of PMR as well. But besides the, the actual kind of uh, synovitis they have, they are seronegative, as the name says, which means they don't have an, a rheumatoid factor, they don't have a CCP antibodies, which is the, the new part of a, a kind of our toolbox now. And they have, but they have this very puffy hands. So it's not just swelling of the, the joints, it's pitting edema of, of the dorsal, dorsum of their hands. R3P can be associated to PMR, can actually happen associated to RA, can actually happen by itself, can happen also as a perineoplastic manifestation rarely. So that's something to keep in mind. These patients can be a little bit kind of difficult to manage with steroids. Reportedly, they actually have good response to Paquinol, which is hydroxychloroquine. That is something that we actually use a lot as well for this kind of milder inflammatory arthritis. We still use for rheumatoid arthritis patients. We use for um, lupus, of course. Uh, and so that's something that they, they do respond with. And I think the interesting thing with this is that, and, and this is something that we still need to kind of understand better, is that I think patients with PMR have different paths. So patients with PMR, there are patients who can have one bad episode and then remit and don't have any 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 symptoms again. That's that's a group of patients. There are patients who can have PMR symptoms for years and years, and that goes a little bit with what the literature shows of some patients requiring steroids for several years. And it's certainly not the patient population that you want to keep on like steroids. And I think more and more, it's probably mixed data, but I think low doses of steroids are not necessarily kind of a peace of mind either. And depends, of course, on who the patient is. And then some patients end up developing this more seronegative rheumatoid arthritis picture, which they end their biggest burden of, the, of disease ends up being kind of small joint arthritis. And then some patients, like I said, 10 to 20% can develop into GCA. So what determines those paths in patients with PMR is something that we still, it's, it's still kind of un, uh, unclear to us. Usually female patients with higher inflammatory markers at baseline can actually have a little bit more of a prolonged a disease course and that last for years and those are the patients who stay on two three milligrams of prednisone for years and years uh, but i think those paths and what does that mean pathophysiologically speaking on the mechanism of disease that's something that we still need to understand this has been great and one of the reasons that i wanted to talk to you is about this case series in the annals about treating diabetes to improve Patients with PMR, uh, it's an article from Japan, a case series of three studies. I wasn't real convinced after I read it, so I had you read it. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that study, and uh, is it even hypothesis generating? It's, it's difficult to really kind of make any strong uh, kind of thought or hypothesis to, to come from it. But what they do is they describe three patients. Case number one, who uh, I think had a history of diabetes, was uncontrolled, had a higher, uh, like a... Um, high A1C, so they were concerned of using steroids on this patient. They started him on kind of hypoglycemic anti-diabetes treatment medications, and CRP inflammatory marker symptoms got better. Patient number two, who was already on steroids and were having issues with, this, with their glycemias, started on anti-diabetes treatment, symptoms get better as well, without changing the dose of the steroids. But then again, that patient was on steroids. And then a third patient 
who was having PMR symptoms, sounded like a PMR patient, got started on diabetes treatment in a couple of a couple of weeks, symptoms go away, inflammatory markers go away. One of these patients, I think they get follow-up between 10 and 20 weeks. That being said, um, is there any evidence that like any hypothesis or any like link that has been described for this the answer is not really we certainly know that that hyperglycemia causes inflammation that's that's a fact uh, we certainly know that uncontrolled diabetes has um, musculoskeletal manifestations and, and complications from it as well we you know frozen shoulders and there's diabetic arthropathy but that being said this acute inflammation I think it, there's, there hasn't been any description of this in the literature. There is, from the large epidemiological studies, I haven't seen any evidence to saying that patients with diabetes or patients who are on diabetic medications have better control or different courses of, of their PMR. I think it's hypothesis generating and, and probably that, you know, the, the easiest way to go with this and, and look would be actually looking into cohorts of population, like, you know, big databases and see if there's any signal there. I think they did a very nice description, but at the same time, proposing a study where you are telling patients with PMR not to receive steroids, you know, steroids have certainly have like a P uncontrolled inflammation certainly has repercussions. We know that there's still some concern about increased cardiovascular disease or vascular disease in those patients, which we know is seen in other conditions like rheumatoid arthritis and systemic uncontrolled systemic inflammation has repercussions that besides the fact that you don't want a patient not feeling stiff, not moving, being in pain constantly, and that affecting the quality of life as well. So I think it's a nice description, but there's not a true link yet. And I, I would say that before a trial, there would probably be other ways to address the question a little bit better. Did these patients truly have PMR or they had something else? You know, like I said, it, it's it's a diff it's not the simple a simple uh, kind of disease to diagnose and some cases can some cases can be a little bit tricky as well i don't know if they flared later so i think it's a nice description but there certainly needs to be a little more work before doing something like an rct to say we're going to treat uh, pmr diabetic patients just with a kind of diabetes medications and see what happens so uh, what what i think you're telling me is this is fascinating stay tuned I think the important thing that we've discussed over the last 20 minutes is PMR is a relatively common disease. How common is PMR? And it's a condition that internists are going to diagnose in their office, sometimes in the hospital. But if we're worried about giant cellular arteritis, if we have any of those warning signals, that's probably when we need to get rheumatology involved. But most PMR is going to be taken care of without ever calling a rheumatologist. So in the UK that has, you know, great databases for their national health system, a study from a couple of years ago actually showed that PMR patients can be exclusively taken care of by, by primary care physicians in like 70 to 80% of cases. So I think, yes, most of this, most of PMR patients will certainly live and could get adequately treated and, and managed in, 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 with primary cares. I think the referral to rheumatology needs to come in mind probably when the patient is not responding. I think there needs to be a good, um, a lower threshold if the patient has already metabolic comorbidities, the diabetic, hypertensive, heart failure patient, because even though the use of what we call steroid sparing agents in, in PMR is not really, doesn't really have like super solid data behind it, and it's not something that we necessarily do every, every time, 
if you have someone who you know is going to struggle with with the steroids or you know someone who has already flared two three times so you're foreseeing a prolonged course of steroids might be a good idea to get kind of a rheumatologist to say like well we can explore use of methotrexate that is some something that's occasionally used for patients with pmr a use of uh, leflunomide there's another medication that we probably would use in someone who doesn't tolerate methotrexate. Um, there's all this growing interest about IL-6 inhibitors. I'm not going to get too much into it, that that is actually the first biologic that is approved for the treatment of giant arteritis. So in someone who, who is having issues with steroids, it's something that can be, I guess, discussed. Neurologic symptoms, patients who are young, so probably early 50s, it's still, a, even though we say 50 and over, that's some, somewhere, a, place, a patient that I would say probably needs to see a rheumatologist just to get a sense if this is not just fully PMR or something else. Certainly GCA symptoms, and like I said, issues tapering off steroids as well. Well, Sebastian, thank you so very much. Um, I think this is a fascinating condition and really appreciate all the information you've given us and hopefully all of us will do a better job of recognizing and uh, starting treatment and being aware of the red flags. Uh, so this has just been great. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm glad to take the opportunity to talk about PMR. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This wide-ranging discussion of polymyalgia rheumatica and giant cell arteritis clarified for me some of the differences between these two overlapping syndromes. Approximately 50% of patients with giant cell arteritis at some time in their course will have symptoms of polymyaldromatica, whereas only 10 to 20% of patients who initially present with polymyaldromatica will actually at some point in their course have giant cell arteritis. Polymyaldromatica is a clinical syndrome and a clinical diagnosis Patients generally start with proximal muscle stiffness and pain. This uh, occurs especially after rest, is most common in patients who are above the age of 50. They very often have elevated sedimentation rates and CRPs, but not always. The syndrome is due to synovitis. They generally have an excellent response to moderate steroids at a dose of 12.5 to 20 milligrams of prednisone. They can generally be tapered to as low as 5 milligrams a day of prednisone over the first six months. When should we worry about giant cell arteritis, which is a much more serious disease and much more life-threatening disease? The red flags that Dr. Satui mentioned include headaches, jaw claudication, scalp tenderness, temporal artery tenderness, Bruise or changes in pulse in any of the limbs or changes in blood pressure in any of the limbs. If one is not certain or the patient is not responding to expected doses of steroids, often a rheumatological consultation can be helpful in deciding whether or not this patient needs further evaluation. We hope you've learned a lot today and we thank you for listening to Annals on Call. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.